the lighthouse effect. Hey, it's Nikki Llewellyn and you're on Gut Plus Science. This podcast is on a mission to increase engagement at work. And on this show, we equip CEOs and people first leaders of all levels to make impact. Let's get to it. Hey, Gut Plus Science listeners, I have been a fan of work human stuff for a while. And then a listener got me turned on to one of their leaders and all of his teachings. And it brought us to this awesome episode. I am so excited to have a Gut Plus Science listener who has become a dear friend with me as my co-host to introduce our guest today, my friend and engagement specialist, Tanya Dittman, who, by the way, has recommended more guests than anyone else to this show in the past five years, is a huge fan of our guest and his teachings and has quickly turned me into a follower of his work too. Tanya, I will hand it over to you to introduce Steve. Thank you so much, Nikki. I am so honored to introduce Steve Pemberton. He is the Chief People Officer for WorkHuman, leading an online platform bringing positivity to the workplace through social recognition. Before WorkHuman, Steve was a Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion and Chief Diversity Officer at Walgreens and Monster Worldwide. On the personal side, I believe Steve's wife shares my name, Tanya, and they are the proud parents of three amazing children. I met Steve for the first time in 2018 in Austin, Texas. He was on stage at one of the best conferences I have ever attended, Work Human. He spoke on the advantage of disadvantage and how to transform adversity into action. Uh, while he was there, he was sharing his first book, Chance in the World. And I walked away with amazing lessons that those of us that are in leadership and in HR and in the people business, we have an opportunity to impact people more than most professions, requires a warrior spirit and a servant's heart. And that recognition is the seed. Uh, if you can tell people about the impact they've had on you, it creates ripples. And those seeds grow trees, they grow forests. I walked away from that conference and it changed my role. It changed the career trajectory in my life from marketing to become the director of culture at the company I worked for at the time. And since then, I followed Steve. And when I heard his second book, The Lighthouse Effect, I just had to reconnect. So Steve... Welcome officially to Gut Plus Science. I would love to have you share the why behind writing the second book, The Lighthouse Effect. Well, Tanya, first, thank you for such a wonderful and kind introduction. I almost was tempted to look over my shoulder because I wasn't sure exactly who you were talking about. <laughs> and you're right. You and uh, my wife do share not only the same name, but the same spelling, uh, the name Tanya, because it can be spelled different ways. And each different version says that their way is the correct way. So. I'm going to go with your version and hers, of course, especially because today's our 25th anniversary. I should also point out. So, Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Yes. So the irony of the second book and probably the irony of the first book, too, is none of it was planned. I wrote my first book, A Chance in the World, because my children, who were six, four, and our daughter was one, she was too young. The, the boys uh, were asking, where was my mother and father? And I did not realize that children were thinking about those things at that age because they see us and they see where they come from. But they begin wondering, so where did you come from then? And when I uh, told my oldest boy, in essence, that I did not have a mommy and daddy, he began really probing with even more questions. 
And I realized in that moment that I, who had been denied a family story and a family history, needed to give them theirs. And I also realized that what he was asking was this question I think that all of us ask, who am I and whose am I? And I never knew the answer to that until my mid-20s. And that was the journey that I wrote about. When the book arrived in the mail, I thought, I've done that. Published author, because I have a you know, career in the world of human resources. So an author, speaker, that's not what I was doing. And I was raising a family, young family at that. So when the book arrived in the mail, I said, great, I can get back to my life. Because it basically took a year of, not a year off from my career, but certainly made a lot of sacrifices to write the book because I wanted to write it. And I was in for quite a surprise when I realized that the first book became an invitation for people to share their stories with me. And it remains one of the most impactful life lessons that I have taken from sharing that journey because it has connected me to people and their stories from all over the world, from across races, faith expressions, genders, uh, political views. And you begin to learn pretty quickly that our generation is kind of missing the point about the mutuality of story, because we all have mutual chapters in our stories. Our stories are not exactly alike. They should not be exactly alike, but there is a mutuality to them. And that mutuality is not to be found on social media timelines and on the news and speeches from politicians who far too many of them, not all, but far too many of them cruise above the waterline because labels can be very purposeful in their ability to divide and alienate and suggest that you know someone's story because of what they look like, when in fact you know very, very little. And so as I was thinking about what would be the follow-up now, A Chance in the World, which is what I named the first book because that was the prediction from a babysitter who saw me at one and a half years old and says, this little boy doesn't have a chance in the world. That becomes a movie, becomes a children's book, is now taught in American schools across the country. And yet I still did not know what I wanted to write about next. I only knew I didn't want to write about me again uh, because of of the stories that I've read, that I've encountered. And I always appreciated that they liked my story. But oftentimes I was the one thinking, no, you're the, you're the extraordinary one. You're the one with the story. And at some point, those years of hearing those stories connected. And I said, rather than writing either a prequel or a sequel to my story, why don't I share the stories of these 10 people whose lives and journeys I have encountered over the course of my life? And let me tell their stories. And that was and has become the lighthouse effect. Wow. Tanya, first of all, thank you for such an outstanding introduction. And Steve, Whoa, what a backstory. Thank you for that. And since we only have a few minutes with you and we want to maximize every one that we have and these episodes go so fast, let's dive right in and have you break down the lighthouse effect, highlighting the nine attributes in the framework. So let's begin with the architectural structure that is the lighthouse. There's nearly 23,000 of them all across the world and they truly are architectural marvels. They have been with us since ancient times. In fact, the very first known lighthouse was constructed on the Greek island of Theros, and which is why those people who study lighthouses are called ferologists. 
So it is an architectural structure of yesteryear, and yet it's still indoors. August 7th is National Lighthouse Day. There's legislation underway to protect lighthouses. And some have been sold privately, and those owners are now restoring them, converting them into hotels. And the curious mind me says, well, why is that? Especially because we have technology now. We have electronic navigational charts and GPS. We look on our devices to help us navigate the sea. We don't need to look necessarily to the horizon, and yet still the lighthouse indoors. Well, why is that? And I think it's because the attributes of the lighthouse are also the best and most powerful attributes of humanity. Because the lighthouse, and I'll just give you a few of them, the lighthouse by its very nature is there to guide our journey. And it does that by protecting our journey and correcting our journey. That's how it guides us. You actually cannot sail right up to a lighthouse because it's too dangerous. The lighthouse, wherever you see it, the lighthouse always exists where there is danger. And it's there to guide you away from it, which ironically is a reason why you can't really sail up to a lighthouse and say, thank you, thank you. It turns our doubts into a destination because if you're living in a storm or or an uncertainty, you've lost your way and there you see the lighthouse and you have doubts in that moment. And now when you see that lighthouse, now you know there is a destination. It has this ability to turn circumstances or to pivot from circumstances to possibilities because a lighthouse is not really concerned with how you came to be in that condition. It does not blame you for not knowing your way or not being able to see that a storm was coming. It's not really focused on the circumstance. It's focused on the possibilities. It has this extraordinary courage is another attribute because to stand there and do battle with the sea is to be courageous. From a distance, lighthouses are beautiful. You get up close to them and they are battle scarred because they exist where the danger is. They're in the same storm that you are. They know that your first picture is not your full story, which is why the lighthouse is not concerned with your social label. It doesn't care about your race, your gender, your political views, faith expressions before it tries to summon you to safety and to safe harbor. And those are just a few. The people that I wrote about embodied those attributes of the lighthouse. Uh, The high school teacher who took me in when I was 16 years old, just three days after Christmas, I literally had nowhere to go. I'd been in my social worker's office all day trying to get somebody to take me in. And he opened up his home and his heart to me. I had come to him scarred myself because, well, not to be impolite about it, but I had been discarded by society, said I didn't have a chance in the world. From the time I was one and a half, that's what was said of me. So you grow up on the one hand, trying to figure out who you are and then whose you are, and nobody's able to answer that for you. Yes, it leaves you with doubts. But what did he do? John Sykes was his name. He turned those doubts into destinations. Wells Remy Crowther, morning of 9-11. He is in the South Tower, and he is one of the few people who is above the strike line of the first plane. And he is a volunteer firefighter in addition to being inequities uh, trader. And he finds his way to safety. He gets below the strike line. And as he's descending, he hears all this chaos on the 78th floor where the plane struck. He steps 
off of that stairwell and onto uh, the 78th floor where there is, you can imagine. And he summons 18 people to safety. And when he gets those 18 people to safety, he could say, I've done my job. I've saved those people. It's not what he does. He gets them to safety and then he goes back up again to try and save more people and ultimately loses his life in the process when the towers crashed. What was his lighthouse effect? Selflessness. In that moment, it was absolute selflessness. 24 years old, uh, a whole life in front of him. And you could see why when you encounter these stories, how I think it's really an antidote to so much of the dissonance in the discord. And Nikki, to a person, these are all, at first glance, ordinary people, just like us. They're not celebrities. They're not well-known. They have their own tests and challenges. But they were able to summon from a certain kind of adversity a way of living and learning and leading that I, I think is so instructive and so powerful for all of us. I love the storyline of the lighthouse fueled by the people that illustrated these attributes in your life and just the power of how stories that others hear, like we, anybody, like we hear these stories and then we want to emulate that. And so I'm sure that that's a lot of how this book and this philosophy inspires. I'm curious if you could kind of break down for us for our leader listeners, how you roadmap leading others to embrace the lighthouse effect. Well, the, the attributes, I, w- I will tell you, is constructed exactly that way because I think it's applicable as leaders. There's also a certain kind of humility. The very nature of the lighthouse is, is to be humble because it, it stands there in a position of leadership. Right? I think it, it requires us to think more collectively and more collaboratively as leaders, knowing, which is a curious part about the lighthouse, and I think it's applicable to leadership too. You never know who's watching you. As a leader, you never know. The lighthouse never knows who sees it. And it's true for us as leaders. You never know who's taking example from your very presence, from the way in which you communicate, the way in which you inspire, the way in which you solve problems. Because the lighthouse, first and foremost, is a problem solver. That's what it's there for. It's not there for an aesthetic beauty. It's also there in difficult and challenging times, times of uncertainty. That, for me, shows up in daily interactions that I have. And I'll give you an example. On Friday, Roe v. Wade was overturned by the United States Supreme Court. And that had, at Work Human, quite an an emotional toll and impact on on our humans. I first heard about it from my daughter, who was 17. And she sent me a text in caps now for 17 year olds. In caps is not, that's not cool. You don't do that. (laughs) But her text was two words, dad, please. That's all she said. I didn't know what she was talking about because I had not yet heard the decision. And when I called her, I thought something was wrong. Kennedy, you okay? And she said, you didn't hear? And I said, no, no. And she told me Roe v. Wade was overturned. What my daughter was experiencing in that moment and what she was saying was, dad, please show me where the light is here in a matter that is so painful and so difficult to me. And then the same kind of emotion that she was feeling, many employees that work human were feeling. And so I, who have the same kind of questions that everybody else has, have to try and find a lighthouse moment in that. And I have to now communicate that both to my daughter and to 
our employees at Work Human. And you've got to take some time to think that through about the implications of what that means. However, you feel about an issue as a secondary matter, because what's needed from you in that moment is guidance, is a sense of safe harbor. And what now, how that showed up with her was for me saying, she asked me, could I go join a protest later on that day? And I said, not only can you, but I expect you to. I expect you to. I expect you to share your voice, to raise your voice. I expect that of you. I would be disappointed if you didn't. So the lighthouse moment for me isn't, wasn't the storm necessarily, because the storm was not of our doing, but it's make sure you use your voice. Leaders can do that too. Such a powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. And I wrote down a few notes as you were walking through like your illustration of introducing the light, lighthouse effect. And I'd love if you can expand a little bit on particularly like putting this like leadership lens on as far as leading, not circumstances, but leading towards possibilities. Can you expand a little bit more on just inspiring our listeners to think through that mindset? There was a time in my life where I thought the whole conversation about leadership was overrated. And in part, because I thought as you grew in one's career, titles, roles, responsibility, influence, I thought, well, everybody kind of knows what it means to be a leader. Uh, The exact opposite, I think, is true. Because the more that you ascend, the more that all of that ascension tells you, you know, I kind of got a handle on this leadership thing, kind of know what I'm doing. When in fact, I think the most effective leaders are always the one who know that they don't know everything, actually. So that shows up for me especially when it comes to to problem solving, because we find ourselves immersed in circumstances, daily challenges. Uh, How do we respond to a social issue that our people are feeling? That's the circumstance. But I do think it is so important to pivot and focus us on the possibilities. And the question is, how quickly do you make that move from the circumstance to the possibility? All of us have been in rooms where we hear people pound the circumstance or pound the problem into submission, and they keep articulating it and articulating the problem over and over again. So my intent is always up for the pivot. And I think leaders have a responsibility to want to pivot from the circumstance to the possibility. That's number one. I think the second thing is to invite others to participate in defining what the possibilities are. doesn't matter where they are in the organization. doesn't matter. And one of the ways that leaders can do this is simply asking your teams, whether it's a huddle or a scrum or a large departmental meeting, ask your leader, ask those who report into you, what don't I know? What am I not seeing here? Because there's a certain kind of conviction that one has that puts you in a place of leadership. But that humility comes from recognizing that you're not going to have all the answers. But if you've developed people well, you've hired well, then they can provide you windows into what those possibilities should look like. And this is certainly what's unfolding in the company now as we're talking about the decision on Roe v. Wade. And especially as a man, no matter how much of a feminist I might believe myself to be, I am not a substitute for a woman, and I'm not a substitute for how that might impact her. Though I can empathize and certainly understand, I'm best informed when I am 
providing the environment as a leader where people can share their opinions with me. The third is I think that's especially true when you have elements of herd thinking. You've got to provide an environment where somebody can raise a reasonable, considered, respectful objection to a direction. I won't leave meetings until I feel I have heard all points of view. And I say repeatedly over and over again, this is not the forum for you to simply agree with me. So I use words like pressure test. I want you to pressure test the perspective in the room, raise objections and concerns. And Nikki, I'll tell you, it's born of self-interest because I figure I would much rather my team tell me that I'm wearing stripes and plaid in the house (laughs) before I walk out the front door and have the marketplace tell me. And when you see so many full paws, and I know I'm not the only one who said, boy, didn't somebody tell them? <laughs> didn't, didn't somebody tell them that you have to be aware of her thinking? And I would describe it this way when we hear, you know, great minds think alike. And that's true. But what that also means is that somebody's redundant. Somebody's redundant. And so a culture of a team where all the great minds think alike, really problematic, really problematic. Great point. I feel like I've got like 10 questions and I get to like pick one, I think, before you have to start transitioning. So here's one that I'd love for you to speak into. You know, when we think of a lighthouse, you think of it giving clarity to the destination. And when you think of leadership, a great leader shares the vision. I'd love for you to speak into your come from around just maybe a way that some leaders aren't thinking right now about being a lighthouse as far as painting the destination and maybe where there's some gaps that you see in people missing some things that in your model of the lighthouse, here's some things to consider with really giving that clear destination. Well, one of the things that I often see blindsiding leaders is in all candor overconfidence in their own hubris. And you have to really guard yourself. You're the one who has to be conscious of that. And it can certainly be hard for a team to tell you that, right? But you're the one who has to recognize, I recognize it in myself. I, you know, grew up in a very turbulent situation. I had to impose my will. I had to. And if I hadn't, I wouldn't be here. But I can't navigate through life that way. I think it's important to engage executive coaches who can help you define what and where your blind spots are. You have to be open to your vision being altered and changed by the facts and circumstances on the ground. And it doesn't matter how strong you are. Uh, how strong your organization, your function, your company is. There's been several stories of leaders' inability to shift and adjust the vision in light of the changing circumstances. So I often liken it to having a powerful, strong home. And boy, you're just ascending and you're taking off and you've got great leaders and you're just, you're building more levels because you keep getting bigger and bigger. Work human has gone my time I work human has gone from a 500-person company to a 1,000-person company in less than five years. Doubled its revenues, right? So the house is growing. So what happens? What happens to these entities that keep growing? Because their house is strong, and yet there's far too many instances of them collapsing. Well, here's what happens. They don't anticipate that the land on which the house is sitting shifts. That's how you wind up with bookstores, as an example. Failing to see this intermediating disruptive technology that is Kindle, where people can put 10 books on a device and buy them 
all in less than 10 minutes. Now, books have been around. Their house has been around since medieval times, right? What do you mean we're going to see fewer bookstores? Are people going to stop reading? No, they're going to be reading more. That inability to anticipate, and I think that that's got to be part of the vision, is where can this go wrong? Where can challenges emerge? And this came to me during my graduate work, Nikki, in sociology, where I I studied a lot of disasters as one of the courses I took, which just really struck home with me. The Challenger disaster was one of them where these engineers knew that at a certain temperature, the O-rings could freeze and crack and allow gases to seep in. So they knew this. One of the engineers described waking up in the morning, looking at the temperature and turning to his wife and saying, I don't have a good feeling about this. And yet the disaster still happened. Why was that? Because he, lower in the organization, could not break through the hierarchy of leaders to get that message of urgency in front of them. Mm. And there's quite a few other examples of that. So vision has to be altered, and it often is altered. And I, I find that to oftentimes be a collision because we hear and we celebrate celebrity CEOs and people who pound their vision and impose their will. And we spend we don't spend as much time thinking about those who have adapted, adopted, changed, and reversed uh, course based on the circumstances changing. Thank you for that. In summary, I, like, I, I was writing a bunch of notes and like the top and bottom kind of come together. Vision has to be altered because sometimes the land shifts. Like, oh, that's a beautiful takeaway. So thank you so much for speaking into that. And Steve, as Tanya told us about your work and your background in the introduction, I'd love for you to tell us about Work Human and how the Lighthouse Effect fits right into the work you and your team do every day. The, the Lighthouse Effect is first and mo- foremost a book about recognition. I wanted to recognize these people. I wanted to honor their lives and the mem- or the memory of their lives by putting in front of us recognizable individuals who live in the everyday walk of life that we all do and suggest that they have some secrets, actually, about living and learning and leading, and hence the lighthouse. Well, you know, work human, that's what we do every single day. We've been around over 20 years, co-headquartered in Massachusetts and in Dublin, Ireland. And every day we wake up powering the recognition platforms, peer-based, where people can recognize each other for a job well done, extending gratitude, appreciation in a place that we spend the majority of our lives over the course of a week is in the places that we work. And I think that's so important now, Nikki, because everywhere else we turn in society seems to be so fractured. I mean, where does one turn for community when the very idea of it seems generationally baked in dissonance and discord? I don't know about two of you. I find it exhausting exhausting. And I often think quietly to myself, how do you wake up each day living in that dissonance, cultivating it, advantaging it? Oh, I didn't want that. I didn't want that. So what we're able to do is provide the ability for people to recognize each other. It doesn't require approval from a manager or a boss. Companies dedicate 1% of their payroll to recognition We, in turn, power their platforms, and then we extend beyond that 
into performance management vis-a-vis conversations and life events. Uh, Because the pandemic really changed our whole construct of our lives. So three of us always talk prior to March of 2020, work life, work life, work life. Pandemic changed that. That's not the fraction anymore. Now it's life work. What kind of life do I want? I want to be closer to my parents. I want to be home in time to read my children bedtime stories. I want to put them on the school bus. How can my work fit into the life that I want rather than how it was before? I will accept this long commute. I won't be there for the Little League game and the soccer games because of work. Pandemic changed that. So to recognize that we value the entirety of someone's experience, that you can be remote as we all going to be in some capacity, and yet you can still recognize people for a job well done. Lastly, on that front, I would say that it is so, well, I'll say it differently. It gives me an armor against the discord that seems to permeate so many different parts of society. It is always the small things. Hey, Tanya, thank you for responding to this urgent need on this communications that I asked for. Uh, Nikki, I really need to get that financial model for you. And you pointed out to me something that I did not see. Thank you. We assign a monetary value to that, which you're then able to redeem, and which I often do in my home. So in my house, uh, we work humans like a verb because the kids ask, well, we're going to work human that day. And in other words, you're going to buy me a new set of sneakers or headphones or something to that effect. But what it really does is just it drives culture. It gives you the ability to quantify culture because now you can see what is the cultural temperature. What's the values temperature? I know one of ours is respect for all, for example. I know how often that value is used in recognition. And so now I'm able to go not just to the company, but to functional leaders and say, here is a cultural strength. And recognition gives you the ability to really drive all parts of the HR ecosystem, becomes part of your employer brand. So it impacts recruiting, certainly critical to retention, succession planning diversity and inclusion, like recognition puts you in every single HR conversation, every single HR philosophy and approach. So much mentorship goodness from you, Steve. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break and then wrap up with our lightning round where we'll get to know a little bit more about some of your favorite things. We'll be right back. If you're leading with a people-first mindset, which most likely you are because you're listening to Gut Plus Science, join People Forward Network, the largest community of humans on a shared mission to lead meaningful work. You can find us at peopleforwardnetwork.com or follow People Forward Network on LinkedIn. All right, we're back on Gut Plus Science today with my co-host, Tanya Dittman, and we have our guest, Steve Pemberton. It's been an awesome, awesome conversation today, really learning more about his new book and more behind the lighthouse effect and how we can lead better and just learning that example. So Tanya, I'm going to kick it over to you to do the lightning round questions for us today. That sound good? That sounds great. All right, take it away. Since we've been talking about books, Steve, what is your favorite book of all time? Or favorite recent read? Yeah, I'll give you two answers. I'll answer both of them real quickly. Favorite of all time, Watership Down by Richard Adams. It was the Harry Potter of its day. Classic. One most recently I've read is The Song of Achilles, which revisits the life of Achilles. Uh, Fascinating read. 
Fantastic. Adding that to my list. Uh, favorite hobby when you're not working? Golf. <laughs> that was immediate. Immediate. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, favorite vacation spot? Martha's Vineyard. It is where my wife and I met 26 years ago. Today's our 25th anniversary. And so, yeah, we, we met walking down the street in Martha's Vineyard. That's so cool. And we can talk to you that the greatest line in the history of dating was uttered on that day because she asked me, we've been talking for about maybe a day or so, and she asked me what was my last name. And I said, my last name is Pemberton. And uh, one day that's going to be your name too. Oh, okay. That wins. (laughs) So sweet. Happy anniversary. Love that story. And then last question, how can listeners connect with you after the show? Across all the the media platforms, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I also have my own site, uh, stevepemberton.io, where uh, you can see what I'm up to. Leave me a message, gain access to the masterclass that I actually hosted with one of the people that I wrote about, Carmen Ortiz McGee. So uh, stevepemberton.io is just the new .com. (laughs) I just want to say really quickly, you were kind enough to speak I know you speak with many school districts in the work that you do. And you spoke at my high school in my little community here in Wisconsin. And I just love the work that you're doing. I love the Lighthouse Effect. Thank thank you so much for being a guest. Honored to be with both of you. All right. This is such a great episode with so many key takeaways. Here's my truth you can act on from today's Gut Plus Science. Number one, a humble foundation is core. Core to building. Number two, remember leaders need to have a clear vision, but vision has to be prepared to be altered, and sometimes the land shifts. Number three, lead to the possibilities from your circumstances and lean into your people to help guide you on what you're missing. Simple questions like, what am I missing? Or what do you think needs to be fixed here? So powerful on so many fronts. Number four, collective collaboration is core. Steve shared how he leads meetings to find all viewpoints and to pressure test. Collective collaboration. I love it. Now I know everyone is ready to go out and read The Lighthouse Effect. Grab the book. It sure is next for me. We'll see you next time. We just left the world a little bit better. Now go do something with it.